Good morning, church family. So I hope you all have had a, a good weekend. I hope Sally didn't hit you too bad or hit any of your loved ones too bad. Uh, I, I want to just remind you in this season when hurricanes come through and you see them come across the news and you, you see things, you should take a moment, just, just really quickly, whether you're on the driving or see it on the news, just pray for those that are affected. I think sometimes if you're very far removed like we are, sometimes we kind of just turn a blind eye at times to those who their lives have been completely destroyed, uh, the things that they have, uh, the pictures and the moments that they have collected throughout time uh, can be wiped away in just one quick storm. And I just want to remind you during this tough time that our prayers matter. God wants uh, us to pray. And so I, I just encourage you as a church, when, when you see natural disasters and things like that come across uh, the news or whatever, just take a moment in prayer. That's like totally side, not at all what we're talking about, but I want you to, to do that. I think it would be really cool as a church for us to do that. So um, how many of you have seen or read the movie slash book, The Notebook? Raise your hands. Men, y'all gonna, okay, King, I see you, I see you. Any other men in the room? I, have, I, got, I got a couple, Eric Latimer, you know? Okay, yeah, he was holding out on me. So uh, for those of you that don't know about The Notebook, a guy named Nicholas Sparks wrote this book and then later turned it into a movie, and it is the all-time sappiest love story movie ever. And uh, some people really love it, some people really hate it, other, other people make fun of people for loving it. I like it, not going to lie to you. Never read the book, I don't read fiction. Uh, if I'm going to read, I'm going to make sure it's academic because I don't enjoy reading as much. So I'm going to put something in my brain uh, that I, maybe I can hold on to, just maybe. But this story of The Notebook is a story of a, a young boy and a young girl. They meet, they fall in love, they have in and out relationships as that happens sometimes. And he goes to war and writing her letters. She doesn't get him because her mama doesn't want her to get him. And then he comes back and he's like, hey, I've been writing you letters. And she's like, you, you didn't write me any letters. I didn't get them. And there's the in and outs and all of the the stuff that happens in love sometimes. And when we think about this story of the notebook, and more specifically this couple, I, I was thinking about how much each of us loves to be pursued. You and I love to be pursued. We, we, we enjoy being pursued, whether it's for that job that you've been hoping for. Even if you know that you aren't looking for a job or you don't really want to move, it feels really nice to get that email or that phone call to say, hey, we've been looking to hire somebody and you've got the right skills for the job. We'd love for you to come. That is a good feeling. I mean, nod your head if you're, if you're you know, picking up what I'm laying down. It should make you feel good that somebody wants you. Whether it's in love, maybe you're dating or you're online dating or whatever it is, it feels really good to be pursued by someone. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, that this idea of pursuit, it feels really good to be pursued. And the reason why it feels good to be pursued is because we all want to be wanted. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different stories that Jesus told to people, kind of exemplifying this idea of God's pursuit after you and I. And so we're going to be in Luke 
chapter 15 this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn there. Luke chapter 15. The story we're going to be looking at is a very familiar story. You've probably heard it a couple of different times. You've probably sung about it, whether you knew it or not. It's the parable of the lost sheep. And so we're going to begin Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, looking at this idea of how God pursues after you and I. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let's take a pause there. At first glance, we, we might find it odd that Luke separates the tax collectors and the sinners. Because as Christians, we would understand that really all people are Christians. It doesn't matter your profession or, or your background or where you come from. Num, num, uh, Romans 3.23 makes it very clear, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so all of us would kind of read that passage and go, but aren't, isn't everyone sinners? Like, doesn't everyone kind of fall into that latter place? But Luke wants us to see that there's, in someone's mind, there's a difference between kind of these tax collectors and these sinners. And what he's drawing our attention to is the people that Jesus is speaking to. And so Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, these Pharisees and these scribes, and they would have seen the tax collectors and the sinners in, in different categories. John Piper, a famous pastor, says it like this. He says, tax gatherers or collectors were mainly Jewish men who purchased from the Roman officials the right to collect various taxes and customs and tolls. The system abounded with abuses. The tax gatherers were cordially hated and despised by their fellow countrymen. That's a job that you want right now. Not only because they were looked on as unpatriotic and dishonest and greedy, but also because their job made them ritually unclean. So pious Jews saw them as being alienated from God. So these tax collectors were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. So basically, in a nutshell, what Luke is getting the reader to understand is that these Pharisees and these scribes would have seen sinners as bad, but tax collectors as worse. Like it's one thing to just kind of be a sinner or maybe even in their mind some, somewhere a Gentile. It's a whole nother thing to be a tax collector. In the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus, in essence, would have been breaking the law because he was gathering with these people, these people who were ritually and ceremonially unclean. Because these Pharisees and these scribes would have seen the idea and the, the reality of keeping oneself clean as more important than your actual relationship with God. It, it was important for them to kind of keep the status quo as opposed to going out beyond the status quo and maybe getting a little messy in their life. And this is why the parable of the Good Samaritan is so important. Luke, earlier in this Gospel letter, tells us this story of the Good Samaritan. And he does this to help the reader understand and to draw contrast to how religious leaders of the day would have kind of 
separated themselves from not just sinners, but people who would have been ceremonially unclean because it was their job to remain pure and to remain clean. doesn't matter about their hearts in their head. It matters about what's coming on the outside. And so in this situation, Jesus is loving people who He shouldn't love. He shouldn't get close to them because they will infect Him. If you go back to the story that we talked about in Haggai, like holy things do not transfer their holiness to something else. Clean, dirty things transfer their dirtiness to something else. And this is how the religious leaders would have seen this. Is Wait, hold on. If I, holy person, is around the sinner, dirty person, I'm not going to make them holy, but their sin dirtiness is going to come to me and make me dirty. And so let's keep them at arm's length. Bag back 50 feet. Don't come near me. There's a bubble. around. Like the COVID-19 bubble is here. Like, don't come near me. This is how they would have seen the people. And Jesus comes in and He breaks down all of their cultural and systemic barriers in pursuit of loving after people. Take it a step further. Think about the people who Jesus would recruit. Like one of His disciples was a tax collector. Paul, in essence, for the Sanhedrin, was a tax collector. So Jesus really came in and blew up this whole system that they thought they knew how it worked. But Jesus comes in and says, what you think you know, you don't actually know. And I'm reading this and I'm going, where? I'm asking myself the question, where am I too comfortable and I want to keep the status quo? Where am I too comfortable and I want to keep the status quo that I, I never leave my comfort zone and pursue other people? Am, am I like the religious leaders who goes, I'm really comfortable here. I kind of understand this place. Jesus is making me uncomfortable, so I'm going to stay in the comfortable. John Maxwell says this, a leadership coach and pastor and all-around good guy. To succeed in life, we must stay within our strength zone, but continually move outside of our comfort zone. Comfort is the enemy of growth. If something doesn't challenge you, it will not change you. Let me say it again. If something doesn't challenge you, it will not change you. So when you feel this tug or this push, probably like the Pharisees or the scribes may have felt in this moment, where Jesus goes and engages with these people who are not like them, when you feel a pushback against that, you should ask yourself the question of why do you feel the pushback? Where does that pushback come from? Why are you uncomfortable? Why don't you like this? The answer, maybe, is that God is moving you to minister into an environment or to a person who you would have never, ever engaged with had you not followed God's will. If we want to see people who are far from God be brought close to God, then we must be willing to move far from our comforts and go to them. Too often times, 
we do the same things over and over again, expecting very different results. Thomas Jefferson says this. He says, if you want something you've never had, you must be willing to do something that you've never done. So we're in an age, we've been in an age really the last 25, 30 years of this idea of church growth. There are people out there, usually ex-pastors, or they might still, they might still consider themselves pastors. They're literally called church growth analyst. And they'll come into your church and they'll watch you for several weeks and they'll, they'll put together this checklist of all these things that you need to do better to quote-unquote grow your church. And in many ways, the things that they're doing are very good. There's a lot of really helpful things because sometimes as leaders in, in, of churches, we kind of put blinders on and we don't always see, well, hey, we're, maybe we're not that friendly of a church. Maybe the songs we sing don't connect. Maybe this guy who's teaching really just stinks and he doesn't need to be teaching because that's not his gifting and needs to be moved on. And so they come in and they tell you all the hard stuff. But one of the things that they talk about in this church growth world is how does a church grow? And over the last 60 years, I would say most church growth folks would say that churches grow in America because of transfer growth. Not because of new convert growth. And in case you don't know what I'm saying, meaning, Macon's a good, good example for this. We have a lot of churches in Macon. At one point, you might have considered us the, like, the church hub of America. We probably had more churches than miles. It's just how the city works. Some senses, it's a good thing. Some senses, it could be a bad thing. But in our city, oftentimes, what happens is churches grow because Members get disgruntled at one location, and so they go to another. Or, God called them to leave one place and go to another in a very good way. Like, they're just not being, you know, fruitful in this place, and so God will pick them up and move them somewhere else. Transfer growth, let me say this, is not a bad thing. If you hear me say that, I've missed my point. It's not a bad thing. However, I also don't comb through these beautiful white pages right here and ever see Jesus say, you know what, if your church is struggling with growth, just get the one from the people down the road. Like, it doesn't say that. Like, it, it never once says the pastor who can't preach himself out of a sack down the road, you should really, you know, market your stuff on Facebook so that those members will see your preaching because you preach better than him and you should get those people to come to your church. I don't see that anywhere in these pages. Now, I would love people to go from their church to my church. Like, I, I, I want that. Not because of I want to build up my you know, little kingdom here at Piedmont, because I want to see people grow. I want to see this church grow. But what I think we lose sometimes in this idea of growth and comfort is that God has challenged us to grow our church by reaching the lost. There's 160,000 people or so in our city. Most estimates would say that there's around 100,000 people that don't profess faith in Jesus. 100,000 in like our bubble, our Bible Belt church area, 100,000 people that at the end of their days will be separated from Jesus. That hurts. It should hurt you. It hurts me. And I go back and I go, 
to this text, I asked myself the question and I'll ask you, are you staying in your comfort zones? Or are you trying to break out of the, the bubble that maybe we created, you created, that you inherited and saying, you know, the person who brings my Instacart to the door, I might be able to talk to them or the the Publix person or the Kroger person bagging my groceries or the person who works on my car, the guy who does my roof, the guy in my office, the girl I'm friends with on Facebook that I never ever want to you know, engage with, maybe I should tell them about Jesus. Or maybe I should take like a first step and just drop like a, yeah, God's been, you know, when they ask the question, so how's your day been? Yeah, it's been really good. God has been good to me today. I feel like we can look at that and go, that's some really cheesy language. But the truth that it would speak to someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, who doesn't believe in God, may go further than you and I ever know. I'm not telling you to stop there. I'm saying that would be a good starting point. We cannot stay comfortable. We have to get uncomfortable. I was a part of a church one time that would say, we've got to get messy. I don't like that word because it's messy. But I think there's a certain truth to it because we expect people when they walk in our doors to look, act, talk just like us. And there's a measure of you and I as Christians have to go, if people are walking in and they're not believers, sure they might culturally be similar to us, but that's a pretty big underlying cultural phenomenon in their life. Whether they believe in Jesus or not will, will change their morals or their ethics pretty largely. So it's going to change how they interact and how they engage with people, what they wear, what they talk, how they speak, what they talk like. That was good. It's a good sentence. You and I should be willing to have these tough conversations and kind of go outside of the comfort zone, just as Jesus has called us to. Let's continue on in this passage. I think it's picking up in verse 4. So, surrounded by all these people, Jesus says this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Seems like overkill. Just so, I tell you, there, may, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I find it interesting that Jesus asks the question of retrieving the lost sheep as if every shepherd would leave their perfectly healthy 99 sheep and go look for the one dummy that walked away. I mean, put yourself in this businessman's shoes. Hopefully, if you run a business or are part of a business, it's a pretty smart business, meaning you will build in lost product. Like if you run a grocery store, you will account for spoilage, for things going bad. If, if you run a cattle farm, you will account for some of the cattle dying, not making it all the way to slaughter. Whatever product you sell, you should account for loss. But not this guy. This guy's betting it all on 100, and if his life doesn't get 100, he's in trouble. 
And so he has 99 perfectly healthy, good sheep that's going to make him money, feed his family. And he leaves them unattended in the middle of the wild with coyotes and whatever else. There's no fence. There's no attendant watching them. He says, no, I'm going to leave these 99 and go in search of that one idiot that walked away. We don't do that. That's a bad decision in business. And Jesus looks at them and goes, wouldn't you all do this? No, we would not, Jesus. We would be poor. That's not how that works. But what is so good about this story is that God looks at us as that shepherd. And God doesn't do what we would do. He doesn't just leave us like a bad head of cabbage spoiling away. He goes and He redeems us. He looks for us. He pursues us. He comes after us. Thank God for that. I heard a pastor tell a story one time about a lost animal. And to not mess up the story, I'm going to read it. Because he wrote it down in a blog. This guy named Kevin DeYoung, and it was really good. He said, in my neighborhood, on almost every light pole, there are signs for lost dogs or cats. When I first noticed these signs, I felt a tinge of sympathy. But nothing seemed to happen. The seasons changed, the pictures grew faded because of the weather. And yet many of the signs are still up today. I can't help but wonder, is anyone actually looking for these animals? Do they expect me to do all of the work? Did the owners just put up signs and assume that the pets would read them? Realize they're missing and kind of saunter back home? This is not the way that God seeks. The shepherd doesn't just put up a sign that says, hey, I lost a sheep. No, he leaves the 99 behind and goes after the one that's missing. And praise God, he does. There's a contention of Christians out there that are debating, I have been debating for some time, whether we should sing this song in church called Reckless Love. We sing it here, by the way. Spoiler alert. And, and they, would, they would say that we shouldn't sing this song because God's love isn't reckless. I would agree with them. God's love is not reckless. However, you got a hundred sheep. One goes away. You come to me and say, Chris, I think I should go after that one sheep. I've got 99 perfectly good, healthy sheep that will create income for my family, give me stability moving forward. Maybe not as much, but how much difference can one sheep actually make? But I think I'm going to leave the 99 and go after the one. And I would look at you and say, that's pretty reckless. It's actually pretty ridiculous. Don't do that. Just forego it. Move forward. It doesn't matter. But the picture that we lose in, in, in looking at God's love this way is we forget that God is sovereign. Like when we look at it from our perspective to God, yeah, we go, that looks pretty reckless. But if we were to say that God's love is reckless, we go, no, no, no. God has a perfect plan. For you and for you and for you and every single one of us in this room, God's love is 
perfect. He is not reckless. Although from my perspective, sometimes the things he does, I go, man, that looks pretty reckless. And the picture when we sing this song of reckless love is not, wow, God's love is just so reckless. It's why God's love is so amazing that I can't even fathom how that plan works. That's how big and how good he is, is that he is working all things out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And we don't need a debate over whether God's love is awesome, because it is. Whether it's perfect, it is. We just need to look back and go, whoo, man, God's love is good. And from my perspective, sometimes it looks a little crazy. It looks a little reckless. And so I'm going to express that. Because from my perspective, I don't always get it, but I get that He is in control. And so if you ever wonder why we sing that song, it's because you and I look at it and we go, I don't understand. It looks pretty reckless. I know He's in control. I know He is good. And it all works out for His good. As believers, we need to remember that we were once the people, the sheep, that were lost. And God came in pursuit of you and I and saved us by His grace. And when we can remember our own desperate need for grace, we'll be more likely to extend that same grace and that same effort of pursuit to others. So will you pursue others as God has pursued you? Let's pray. God, we are in awe of who you are. And at times, we may not understand your good and perfect plan. And we may look at things and cry out much like David did in the Psalms and lament and and frustration and anger and hurt but we always need to remember that you are good and your plans are good and we can rest in the future that you hold in your hand for us that resting is not just a place where we just sit and do nothing though That resting is standing in the confidence, as we sang earlier, we can stand in your love because we know that you've won the victory, you've won the battle. You are victorious over all, and we trust in that victory. We are not fighting for victory, but from it. And so help us just break down the walls of comfort around us and begin to Look for people and pursue people who don't know you, who haven't professed faith in you. Because I believe and I know that you, your words say that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We are your laborers. Gathering the harvest. Use us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.